The reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Giving to the needy. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may, may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Um, we're continuing in our uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I want to start with a, uh, a bit of an experiment um, this morning. So I want you to fill in the blank, um, but we're all going to do it together at the same time, all right? So I want you to, when it comes to fill in the blank, I want you to shout out the answer um, to this at the same time, and, uh, just to see if we all say the same thing or not, all right? So um, when it comes to the critique of the church, most people say, you ready? The church is full of... Hypocrites. Look at that. We all said the exact same thing. Church is full of Hypocrites. Um, and so maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian, and you're like, someone drug you out this morning, or you're here like just trying to check stuff out, and uh, well, you've come on a good day, because today we're going to talk about that, we're going to talk about spiritual hypocrisy, um, and um, well, let's just admit it right off the bat that the church, that's true, church is full of hypocrites, um, just like every other organization in the world. So we all say we're one thing, and at some level... Um, we uh, betray that, right? So um, hopefully as Christians, we're becoming less of that. And what we say we believe and what we, how we actually act and behave, uh, the gap between those things is becoming less and less, right? That's the process we call sanctification. We're becoming more like Jesus, who, who's the only person who ever has walked the face of the earth that wasn't a hypocrite. Everything Jesus said uh, matched up to his actions. Um, there was no cognitive dissonance if you will, between what he said, he, uh, who he said he was and who he actually was, um, which is not true for us. We say we're one thing or we aspire to be one thing, but we're not there yet, are we? Um, we let ourselves down. We're not, we're not fully there yet. And so we're going to talk about this idea of spiritual um, honesty or, or spiritual uh, hypocrisy this morning. Um, and it's important to us not just because we're Christians, but even for us, particularly here at this local assembly called Village, um, we have kind of 10 values, and one of those values is spiritual honesty and authenticity. Um, we really want to be honest about where we are, right? And so this is that stated value. We want Village to be a place where it's okay to be honest about where we are spiritually without any need to pretend, right? So we don't want this to be a place where you feel any kind of need to, to pretend, um, that you're doing better than you actually are. Um, we go on to say doubt is best explored within the security of family life. We want to build an environment where we wrestle with difficult issues and see them resolved in the hope of the gospel. We want to offer a sense of belonging uh, and be communities of grace in which people can be open and vulnerable. We will not let our welcome be dependent on adherence to any cultural norms not demanded by the gospel. 
So we want this to be a place um, where spiritual honesty and authenticity um, is what we're striving for. And this is where um, we kind of find ourselves in this Sermon on the Mount. Um, Let me just give you a map of where we kind of are in this series. Um, We're aptly working up the mountain, um, and we're almost to the top. Um, In the original language um, that that the Bible's written in, you'll notice certain things that we kind of lose within uh, our modern translations. Um, And the Hebrew people would speak and write and teach, and particularly rabbis and stuff would teach in certain um, ways, and they would structure their um, teachings in in such a way that even the structure itself would communicate certain things. And so um, chiasm, basically it would kind of mirror, the the front end would mirror the back end, and and likewise, and you'd have a center or, or a middle. And often that middle bit was really the driving point of um, what we were, uh, you know, what, what was the main kind of focus and point of it. So you've seen uh, Jesus uh, begins to teach students uh, what it meant to of the kingdom. Am I losing a battery here? Or maybe I'll just move it here. Maybe I'm covering the antenna. Um, what it meant to be the people of God. And then we went into this section of greater righteousness. Right, where Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes, um, and really sifting out what Jesus meant by the law. Jesus, in a sense, is giving us a law like Moses did when he ascended a mountain uh, with the law. Um, but in many ways, Jesus is clarifying, um, not, not, remember, not doing away with the law, but fulfilling the law, and then revealing what has always been there um, in that way. And so now we've gotten to... Uh, greater righteousness, not in relation to God's law, but in relation to God himself, in our devotion to God, in our piety, we might say. And then we'll start to come down the mountain in a few weeks here, uh, greater righteousness in relation to the world, um, yada, yada, yada. Okay? But so we're at this kind of, we're moving toward the peak of the mountain, spiritual authenticity in relation to God, um, that we would actually be God's people in the way that God requires us to be God's people. And not just put on some kind of a show or a facade as the hypocrites do and still do today. Um, and so if you're like me, I'm imagining if you're here today, you're not here wanting to go, you know, I'm here to be the best hypocrite I can be. I really want to perfect this outer facade whilst really not having any kind of inner heart change. Uh, I think we're all here hopefully because we know that there's a, a, a distance between who we want to be and who we actually are. And we want God's spirit to be powerfully working in our life, changing us into the image of uh, his son. And this is really what we've said about this sermon. It's not just a sermon. This is a silhouette of Jesus the Savior as well, because this is who Jesus is. Um, We look to him as our example um, uh, of how to actually live. We follow the way of Jesus. And so this morning, Jesus is going to continue to kind of meddle in our lives uh, in a good way. And um, I want us just to remember, um, uh, you remember as Jesus is kind of giving us a new law in, in many ways, three uses of the law. Because if we, if we just see it, it, by a certain way, we can feel kind of crushed by this. Remember we said the first way is kind of like a stop sign or it's to instruct us. Um, the second way is more like a mirror. It, it shows us who we are um, and it shows us our need. Just like you look in a mirror in the morning and you see the need to 
you know, do whatever we do, like fix our hair or, you know, that's all I do is fix my hair. So I don't know, whatever else. Brush your teeth. I do that as well. So, but I know other people do other stuff. I don't know. Um, or, or then sometimes it can be a map, right? It's a guide um, to show us how to live. Um, and so remember these as we're, as we're going through this as well. Um, because over and over, Jesus is going to, he's used this phrase, hasn't he? You have heard that it was said, but, but I tell you, he's wanting to lead us into a new way. And Jesus always goes after the heart. Um, and he, he's constantly trying to clarify and untangle the way of Jesus from religiosity, um, from just going through these kind of religious kind of motions in this sermon. And so this is where we find ourselves today. And so the beginning of chapter 6 starts off with, beware, look out. There's, some, there's, there's danger ahead. There's spiritual danger that you need to be aware of. We're like, okay, that's good. I like to avoid uh, dangerous situations. So what is it, Jesus, that I need to really be aware of? Practicing your righteousness. Like, wait, well, I, I thought that's what we were here for. I thought that's what we were here to figure out how to practice our right, like actually walk the way of Jesus. Like, uh, what do you mean beware of practicing your righteousness? But he goes on and he says, before other people. So beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Now, at this point, if he just puts a period there, we're all really confused. Because just previously, like literally just a few verses ago in chapter 5, what does he say? You remember he said, you're a light, uh, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do the people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. So at one hand, Jesus is like, no, you should do your good works so that people can see them. And now he's like, hey, beware of practicing your righteousness before the people. So what's going on? Well, at the end, if, why did he say we would practice our good works, why the people would see them and give glory to your Father who is in heaven? And this is what he, he's, he, again, this is maybe the negative side of this. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In order to be seen by them. Um, so again, Jesus is going after motive. Which is good, because you don't want to have to, like, serve in the nursery with a ballyclab on so nobody knows who you are. Like, some kind of, like, serving coffee behind a screen so it's all anonymous. You know, you know that's not what Jesus is driving after here. Ballyclab is in the nursery. That'd be one heck of a church in Belfast of all places. So, but you never know. Um, but, so what is Jesus getting at? He's getting after our motive. Jesus cares not just about what you do, but why you do what you do. And this is a great temptation, um, especially for people like me, um, for people in ministry, right? Because literally I, I perform my righteousness or some of it in front of other people. Like that's, that's part of my job is to do that in front of other people. And then with the day and age that we live in now, um, it's not just the actual platform I'm standing on, but we build virtual platforms. Um, and social media and all of those things that make that uh, a very, very tempting place to, pa to practice our righteousness in front of other people. 
And so I have to be really, really careful with and check my heart and motives on these things, right? Because you'll see pastors, hey, pray for me as I preach this weekend, which would be fine, except it's pray for me as I preach this weekend to 4,000 people. And there's always a picture of this massive giant auditorium, right? And I'm like, what's the purpose of the picture of how big the audience is? And I have to go, hmm, is there something in my heart that wants people to see how many people that I'm getting to preach to? It's a very dangerous place, isn't it? And verse 1 here is going to uh, do two things. It's going to communicate both the continuity of what Jesus has been talking about, this greater righteousness as we looked at, but also introduce a new topic of religious practices. So how we practice our piety, if you will. And again, the hard issue at stake here is not only what righteousness is, which is what he's been clarifying. Righteousness isn't just um, murdering people, it's anger. It's not just adultery, it's lust. But he's also driving at how we practice these things in our lives, and particularly our devotional life before God. And the temptation is to be righteous so that other people will see it and think well of us. There's always a, a shadow mission going on, isn't there? And here's the thing about this kind of like shadow mission is it looks a lot like the real mission that we're supposed to be on. So I'm supposed to be on mission. I'm supposed to be about God's kingdom. I'm supposed to serve, serve the poor in this instance. I'm supposed to pray. I'm supposed to whatever it may be uh, that God has called me to do that's part of our practicing our, our spirituality but there could be a little shadow mission going on that looks just like that, but the mission for that isn't so that people would glorify our Father in heaven, but that people would glorify me, right? So we might, um, we know that we can gain acceptance by doing, you know, Jesus-y things in the Christian community. And so we might, we might be tempted to serve other people but even the timing of that, or maybe even, again, how we kind of post things, right? We serving the poor, hashtag serving selfie, you know, whatever it may be. We, we have to be careful of what's happening in our hearts. I think probably some of the most godliest people in our church are the people who clean it, because <laughs> no one ever sees it. And it's a, a, not a fun job at all, like vacuuming, cleaning toilets, like dusting. And it, it all happens with no one watching, no one seeing it. I, I don't even see it a lot of the times. So if you're on that team, thank you. Jesus sees it, and that's all that matters. But so often we can, if we're not careful, even out of um, motives that we're unaware of, we can even try to work for being accepted and not work from the acceptance that we already have. Because what does he say at the end of that verse? He says, if we do these sorts of things just to be seen, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Why do we do the things that we do as Christians? Why do we come to church? Why do we give? Why do we serve? Why do we pray? Why do we fast? Why do we do these religious observances that we do? 
And a lot of times, if we're not careful, it can be to be accepted by other people in, in the Christian community or even from God himself. But this is what Jesus is driving at, that if that's our motivation, then that's really the only reward we ever get. And so we need to work from our acceptance in Christ and not for our acceptance before the Father. It's because we are united to Jesus, our brother, that we can call God our Father. We'll get into that next week. Jesus actually says. It's because we're already united with Jesus that we get to call God our Father. It's the union with Jesus that gets us in. It's not anything that we do, right? Because what unites us to Jesus is what Jesus did. We just spent the last uh, few weeks with, with Holy Week and, and Easter celebrating that very fact. Um, if you, turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, because I, w- I want you to actually like, look at the words and see it for yourself. Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Um, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He has chose us in Him. God has chosen you, if you're a Christian today, in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, let me ask you, what, have, what did you do for God before the world existed? That's an easy question. You didn't do anything, right? Because you didn't exist yet. I didn't exist yet. God has chosen us in Christ before we even existed, before you've done anything, good or evil, to gain God's acceptance in you. It says... Um, it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, this is verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, out of his own love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to all the good stuff we did for him. No? It's not what it says. What does it say? He predestined us for adoptions as sons, as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of what? His glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our, transgra- our trespasses, our sins, according to the riches of what? His grace. Do you see what's happening here? Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What's the last part of that verse say? To the praise of his glory. 
He has lavished upon us his love. God has set his love on you, his acceptance of you, on you, before you did anything. Anything. It's all because of his grace. It's all because of his mercy. And all of it is to the end of him bringing all things together in him for the praise of his glory. And it's from that acceptance, it's from that love, it's from that security of who we are in him that we then give of ourselves. But because a lot of times we really don't believe God loves and accepts us, we're always trying to work to gain his acceptance. We're always trying to work to gain the praise and approval of other people. It's true, isn't it? It's true in my life. I know whenever I'm, I'm working out of ill motives, maybe trying to impress other people, trying to, to gain other people's kind of uh, uh, admiration or whatever it may be, it's because I'm not actually really secure in who, who I am in Christ. And so it makes us as hypocrites. That word in the Greek, it actually meant actors. We're just acting stuff out on a stage for other people to see. Instead of actually being in just communion with God. Receiving his grace, being lavished upon us. And out of our love in return for him, being motivated um, to obey him, to walk the way of Jesus, which is for our flourishing, remember? This isn't just because God's some kind of megalomaniac wanting all this kind of praise and glory for himself. It's actually for our good, for our benefit, for our flourishing, for our our blessedness as we use the language of, of Jesus at the beginning of it. This is what Jonathan Pennington has to say about it, and I think he's he's so spot on. He says, because practices like giving and prayer and fasting, et cetera, church attendance, whatever it may be, establish a social norm, a social norm within a community, within a society, within, within a Christian community, one's honor and reputation in that community becomes intimately connected with such religious activities. This is a recipe for disaster as it makes it easy for pious practices to get directed not toward God, but toward establishing one's safety and security in that community, in that society. That's true. This is is the family that I belong to. This is the community that I belong to. Might not be the only one, but but as believers, this this is our primary one, Right? And so I want to be accepted in this community. I want to be thought well of in this community. And so I will do the things that this community value. And here's the, here's the thing about these things. Sometimes those motives are in there and we don't even know it. We have, that's why they're called mixed motives. <laughs> Our motive is, uh, no doubt, we do, want to lo- we do want to love and please the Lord. But we have to be careful there's not a shadow mission going on, running at the same time. It's tricky because Jesus defines a hypocrite in a different kind of way than what we've even talked about so far. He defines a hypocrite not as a supposed religious person who is living an immoral life, right? Those are the easy, easy hypocrites to spot. Uh, I'm a Christian, so I live a moral life. And then you go over here, but you don't actually do that. 
right? You're like, okay, that's an easy kind of hypocrite. But that's not how Jesus defines a hypocrite here. How does he define it? A person who is actually living an outwardly moral life. Righteous behavior, outwardly, but doing so with wrong heart motives. That's who Jesus calls a hypocrite. And that's who the Pharisees were, right? The Pharisees weren't people who said they were holy but didn't act holy. They were said they holy, and they did. They acted holy. But that's the key. They acted holy. They weren't actually holy. They just acted as if they were. That's the same word. They were hypocrites. They were just actors, play acting at it. And so notice that passage in Ephesians. What, what happened? What do we describe in, in Ephesians? It's God giving out of his grace and mercy to needy people, you and me. And him supplying that need, not because of anything that we could give back, not because of any merit of our own, but strictly out of his mercy and grace. And so this is how it works. We are needy, God meets that need, and now us, with the Holy Spirit living in us, God's life flowing through us, we start living like the Father. We start living generously. As, as uh, Alan said last week, we resemble our dad, our heavenly father, right? And because he's generous, we then are generous. And because then we are generous for the right reasons, because we love our father, because he has been generous to us, because he has shown us grace and mercy out of his rich resources and has given us then resources not to hoard and, and, and us be uh, the, the end of that, but to be a conduit from which his grace and mercy and generosity flows through, he then rewards us for that. It's, it's all grace, all of it, from beginning to end. He's generous to us, and, I, and our right heart response is to be generous to others. And what does he do? He's even more generous and rewards that. It's all grace from beginning to end. So that's the acceptance kind of piece of that. That's, a, that's why we give out of, out of our, our uh, a right heart motive. We recognize God's goodness and generosity to us, his love to us. And because he's first loved us, we then love him. We then are generous to other people because he's been generous to us. We are generous out of the acceptance that God has for us, not for the acceptance of God or even other people. So then let's, talk, let's continue to go on. Let's talk about the giving piece. Notice in verses 2 and 3, he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, verse 2, verse 3, but when you give to the needy. So he just assumes that they're giving to the needy specifically. This is, again, he's talking about a greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the actors. And then he gives three examples of that. And the first one is our, our giving, our generosity, specifically to the poor or the needy. Next week, we'll look at prayer. And the week after that, we'll look at fasting. And then, again, our, uh, we'll start to look at our relationship with our earthly material um, things that we have. But he assumes that they are giving. Why? Well, because they were. They were. 
God gives to the needy. We are in God through Christ, so we do what the Father does, that is, give to the needy. So remember that Jesus is speaking to a, Jew, a Jewish audience here, right? Uh, the Jews were God's chosen people at that time. This is before um, he opens it up to the Gentiles, thankfully, that's you and me, and the rest of the world. But at this time, Jews were God's chosen people, the people that God had revealed himself to and the people he wanted to reveal himself through to the rest of the world. And so the Jews were to live and act in a certain kind of way that would do what? Reflect the character and nature of God. That's what you and I are to do today. We're to live in such a way that reflects the character and nature of God. So what was God's instructions to them specifically for giving and specifically giving to the needy? Let me just read a few verses to you. Uh, you can jot them down and look them up later on your own. Make sure I'm not lying to you. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, 11. This is God uh, saying to them, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. That's just true. We should do everything we can to eradicate poverty but we never will until Jesus returns. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything about that. It just is the reality of it. We live in such a broken, corrupted world that we'll never eradicate poverty. It's been tried, socialism, whatever. It just isn't, we'll always have the poor with us. And so you'll always have a responsibility, right? Therefore, because you'll always have poor in the land, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. We shouldn't live closed-handedly, but with open hands. So God gives to us, and our response isn't to then make a fist and hang on to everything he gives. We live open-handedly so he can place things in our hand, and things can be taken out of our hand. But then God puts more back in, and then he gives us reward. Do you see? But, but if your hands are closed, then God can't put anything back in them either. We live open-handedly. Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. <clears throat> At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce uh, in the same year and lay it up uh, within your towns. And the Levite, that's the, essentially the pastors of their day, ministers, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, he's not out farming the land or earning a living the way that most people do. And the sojourner, that's the people traveling through, the homeless, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns, they shall come and eat and be filled. So all that you've gained, everything that you've produced, you're to bring out a tenth of that. And that's to be given to people doing ministry, those who can't, blah, 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 blah. Why? That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. This is exactly what Jesus is saying, right? Give. Do it with the right heart motive, and then God rewards you. God gives, gives you more. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. So they were, they were to harvest, but they were to leave some around the edges and the corners. They weren't to harvest every single last grain. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Hey, if stuff's fallen off the vine, leave it. And leave some, uh, don't harvest every last thing. Why? You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Why does he say that at the end? Why does he give them instructions on how to care for the poor and then remind them that I am the Lord your God? Because we forget 
We forget that I give, but I also have a God who's mine, who sees me, will take care of me, will provide for me, just as he's providing through me to those that have need. So the, now this is an agricultural society. Most of us aren't farmers. You might be. I'm not sure. But the principles are the same. Everything that you produce, your, your wealth, as it were, not all of it is for you. God hasn't given you everything that he's given you just for you. He's given it to you to, to bless you, to take care of you, but for you then to also be like your father and help those who have need. Psalm 41 one through three, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Who? The one who considers the poor. What's the reward that God gives us? It seems, uh, as we see the instruction, that it's multifaceted. It, it, it could be more wealth. It could be health. It could be uh, um, security. It could be all these things. Now, it's not a guarantee that if I give to the poor, then my life's going to be sweet. That's not how it works. God's not a genie in a lamp. Sometimes he still allows and brings suffering our way to produce in us um, other things. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Well, what if I give, and I don't have enough? Or what if I give, and that person can't repay me? But that's not why we give. We give as if we are giving to the Lord, and he your father who sees in secret, as we'll see, and who owns the cattle on a thousand hill, he, he's without resource. He, his resources don't end, without limit, will take care of you. And then lastly, in James 1.27, these are just, by the way, just a fraction of what we could have looked at today, just for the sake of time. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So this is what we're talking about. Spiritual authenticity that's real before God and not acting for uh, the sake of other people. What is that that James says? What kind of religion is that? To visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. To keep one unstained from the world. If our religion, if our faith is true before God, if it's not just faith without works, James says that's not any kind of faith at all. That's not a real faith. A faith that's real before God is one that actually considers the needy. Who is more needy than the fatherless, the orphan, the widow? And so when Jesus says, when you give to the needy, it's not if you give to the needy, it's just when you do, because they were. So Jesus is talking to the Jews. The Jews at that time, they would have right off the top of their first fruits given 10% to the temple, to the synagogue, the tithe um, that we looked at. They would have also then on top of that given a, a free will offering or a thanksgiving offering. They wanted to thank God for something in particular or whatever, they would, they would give that. And then on top of that, they would give to the poor. 
So Jews were giving away 15 to 20% of their income and living on 80 to 85% of their income. Now, we don't live as Jews under a civic law anymore. And so in the New Testament, we're never given a percentage. We're never given, hey, this is what you have to do, and then, and then take this amount, and this, right? We now live under grace. And yet these, these should be guidelines for us. If under the law we were required by this, how much more, what, how should we live? You know what, I've, I, there are times in, in my life where I've just been guilty of not even thinking about these things, not even considering them. Well, this is what I make, and so that must be what I spend. Or I never think about, hey, the Lord has given me an increase. What do I, should I increase my standard of living, or should I do something else with that? Or most of us just kind of live thoughtlessly uh, about these things. And I've been guilty of that uh, at times in my life as well. But this is the point. Jesus wants us to think about who we are and what he's given us. There's no way to follow Jesus and not be generous. That's the bottom line. Jesus' people are generous people. So some of you, if Jesus were preaching this today, he might, just say, he might not just say, hey, when you give to the needy. He might need to say to us, hey, some of you need to start giving. <laughs> you need to give uh, to the church. You need to give toward the work of the kingdom. These lights, somebody's got to pay for the electricity. There's, there's actually costs in what we do, right? That's why they gave to the, to the church back then, the Levitical system back then. And so Jesus just assumes that they are giving. But their motive is grace, right? Social justice, almsgiving, care for the poor, it's always a part of Christian life. It's always a part of Christian spirituality. There's no version of Christian spirituality that doesn't include those things. But our motive in those things is always grace because we've received things that we didn't earn, right? Uh, even as I alluded to this morning, we were talking about Turkey. God has given me things just out of grace that I didn't earn. I wasn't born in a third, you, you and I weren't born in a third world country. Advantage right off the bat. Just the fact that you were born in a first world country. Now, most of us probably wouldn't be wealthy by what we consider Western standards, but all of us, every single person in this room probably lives in the top, easily 10%, but probably most of us live in the top 5% of wealthiest people on the planet. That's an advantage. I come from a working class family. My family's not wealthy. When my parents die, um, the thing that they will give me is no debt. <laughs> hey, you don't have to pay any of our bills. That's what I'll inherit. I won't inherit anything, really. When my dad's already dead, um, there's enough there to pay for his funeral, whatever. When my mom dies, it'll be the same. I don't, so I don't come from a wealthy family um, at all. Always a working class kind of family, blue collar. But my parents loved me, stayed married, weren't in and out of prison, weren't addicted to drugs. <laughs> like, made sure I had an education, was never hungry. Massive advantage to, to large portions of the world, right? We are miles ahead of that. And I didn't do anything to earn that. That's just 
by God's grace, the life that I, that I was given that was handed to me. Now, can we work and earn and take the tools that we've been given and actually do some good with that? Yes, we're commanded to do that. But don't forget that the tools that you started with were given to you, tools that a lot of other people didn't have, right? And listen, don't mishear me because this stuff all gets dressed up in like political language of like privilege and all of that. We're not talking about like liberal politics and conservative politics. We're just talking about the Bible and what it means to follow Jesus this morning, right? It's basic stuff. This is just basic being a Christian stuff. So Christians who can't admit these things either don't give or they give out of mixed motives. And this is what we're worried about today, right? This is what Jesus is concerned about, our motives, our heart. And so if your motive to do these things isn't grace, my question for us then is, well, what is it? What is our motive? If it's not recognizing the grace that God has given me, my security of who I am in him, the generosity that God has bestowed upon me out of me doing nothing of of my own merit and then giving out of that, one, because I love uh, the Father, recognize all that has been given to me, and so I, like my Father, want to be like him, all grace. If that's not our our operational motivation for what we do, what we do as Christians, our, our religious practices, then what is it? And this is where it's really subtle, isn't it? Because it can be to be seen by others. Because he says, hey, uh, there shouldn't be, you know, trumpets and stuff involved. And and most of us aren't doing that. Like, we're we're just showing up and, but, but if it's not motivated by grace, it's something else. And often it can be, well, I want to be accepted in the Christian community. I want to fit in here. I want to be seen to be, like, doing my part and... And there's some of that, that 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 is okay, right? Like I want to, to do my job to do a good job. But it has to be motivated by grace. And so we give out of that motive and that motive alone. And here's, here's a, another thing to remember. Generosity does not require wealth. It doesn't require you being really wealthy, Right? Do you remember the, the, the observation that Jesus, Jesus makes? Jesus uh, and his disciples are at church, and they're watching the Pharisees give, and they do the trumpet blowing kind of thing, right? Making sure everybody, drawing attention to their giving and generosity. And then there's the widow, and she gives like 2P. And Jesus says she gave more than anybody else did. She was the most generous person here. Well, technically, no, that's not true. People gave more than she did, but she gave out of a pure heart and gave a proportion, a percentage, way more than those guys before her did who were getting a little glory. So you don't have to be, we're not talking about like, I got to earn X amount of money to be generous. It's about being generous with what you've been given. And so we continue on, right? So when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be praised by others Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Now, what does he mean by trumpets here? It could be a couple things. There were trumpets that would be blown at the temple, almost like church bells as a call to worship kind of thing. And it might be them like oh, shut, shuttering up to his shop and making sure everybody like saw them get to the temple to like give their alms and stuff like that. It could be that. Um, and so he's like, hey, don't, don't do it in a way that draws attention. 
Um, but it's probably, it could be even more metaphorical than that. Just don't draw attention to your giving. That's what hypocrites do. And that is the only, re- the recognition that they've received from other people, that's the reward. That's it. God's not going to reward that. God's not going to recognize that. God's not going to bless that. And so it's our love for God, not others, love to us that is our motive. And then he goes on and he says a really Jesus-y thing. But when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, what does he mean by that? He says, make sure your giving is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward it. What does he mean by your right hand and not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing? Well, the trumpet says more for other people. The left and right hand thing is, is us, right? Because what do we like to do sometimes, even if other people don't see it? Like I give and I'm like, well done, sir. <laughs> right? You need two hands to clap and congratulate yourself. And I think that's what he's getting at. It's, hey, even, don't even let yourself be, don't even do this for your own self-congratulations, your own self-righteousness, what, is, what Jesus is constantly attacking, right? He's always chopping at that tree of self-righteousness, which is what the hypocrites were known for. Us trying to, even our own kind of self-righteousness. Um, as a true Gen Xer, uh, Friends was one of my favorite kind of TV shows um, growing up. There's this one episode where, um, Phoebe's trying to do something nice, but for no, like, self-motivation, right? She's one of the characters. So she's, like, trying to give, and there's, like, a TV show that she hated because uh, it, like, wounded her as a kid. And she's going to make a donation to that, but then one of her friends took the donation, and he got recognition, so then she was happy. So she's like, ah, that doesn't count. And, like, so she goes out and lets, like, a bee sting her um, because, you know, that had nothing, and maybe the bee would go back and look macho in front of his other bee friends or something. Something silly. It's a TV show, right? And then they're like, you know that bee probably died after that. And she's like, oh. Like, but the point was it's so hard and complicated just to do nice things without our own kind of self-motivation getting entangled in that. And this is what Jesus is trying to expose. When we have the right motive, it frees us to be generous. Because we trust our Father, we'll take care of us. Giving is really about trusting at the end of the day. Will you trust God enough with what he has given you to give some of that away? Or do you not think that God will take care of you and feel like you have to take care of yourself? That God won't really meet our needs? We said this isn't just a sermon, it's a silhouette, because this is exactly how Jesus lived, isn't it? He lived under the Father. So he's homeless, he doesn't have a house He relies on other people to support his ministry. He just trusted that God, he just trusted God the Father with his life, literally his life, right? He trusted that if he gave his life away, literally, on the cross, he trusted that if he did that, that his Father, who is good, would have the power to raise him from the dead. That's living and trusting your father, right? It's Isaac and Abraham. (laughs) I trust God enough that even if I have to kill my son, that he has the power to raise him from the dead. Jesus is that son who goes to the cross. And then we're 
uh, instructed to be like Jesus. So this is Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, and this is so hard, count others more significant than yourself. Man, you want to live countercultural in the world today? Forget protesting the Sabbath. Just live as if other people are more important than you are. And you'll knock it out of the park as far as people being able to see your good works and glorifying the Father. Because no one does that. We might be kind to people. We might be generous even. But there's a limit. I'm not going to think of other people more significant than me. And this is what he's getting at. Give in a way that it doesn't matter that you look significant. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours, how? In Christ Jesus, who, okay, so be like Jesus, think like Jesus, who sets us the example, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave of himself all the way, trusting his heavenly Father. And what did his Father redo? He rewards him, as he rewards us. What's, what was Jesus' reward? Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus, is, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the life that Jesus lives. This is why we as Jesus people live the life, we, we follow Jesus into the life that he lived. And it was a life of generosity, fully be as generous as he, as he, as he possibly could be. Why? Because he, he knew the Father loved him. He was so secure in, in who he was in, in, in God the Father that he didn't even count being like him something he needed to be grasped onto. He trusted his Father enough with his own life. And that's the challenge for us today. And it's what I forget so often. God will reward you. You can trust him, and that's enough. That's why we'll come to the table again. It's why we come every week, because the table is where Jesus gives to the needy. It's where he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you, the needy, to the praise of the Father. Let's pray.